Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna pause just this week on our David series that we've been in on since the beginning of summer. We're gonna come back to it uh, in a couple weeks here. But uh, this week, just, just in praying about what we were supposed to do and what God maybe was even stirring here with us at Hope, um, he kind of brought me down uh, a road. And, and he actually used a painting that I'm gonna show you on the screen, not yet, but in a little bit here. He used a painting to kind of surface some things in my heart, he reminded me how he'd done that before and, and did it again. And, and, you know, there's such power in, in the arts, and especially in art and even, even painting or sculpture. And when we use art, uh, sometimes the message in, in a poem or a song or a piece of um, uh, any kind of sculpture, painting, whatever, it, it has the power sometimes to kind of sneak up on us, kind of get past our linear, logical thinking. It bypasses the roadblocks that we've put up in our mind. Sometimes our mind as a roadblock uh, makes it more difficult to get to our hearts. But, but art and story can often get right past that to the place where maybe God might be poking around a little bit uh, in our hearts. And it sneaks up on us. And and art can communicate in different ways through beauty or through pain, through light or darkness, through order and chaos, kind of just like real life. And also, art is very subjective. It's very different from one person to another, which I think is part of the point, right? But one sure way to kind of um, miss out on the point uh, and the potential that art would have to help us is to treat it like science, right? Treat art like science. We dissect it. We analyze it. We overanalyze it. We criticize it. And if we do things like that, then, then the gift of art, that impact, can just be crushed, which is really sad because, again, Sometimes art is one way, not the only way, but one way that God might be stirring and trying to speak to you. And sadly, the church has in many ways lost her place in creating art, mostly because, and I'm talking about the global church, mostly because we tend to be critics. And, we, and when we are critics, um, we demand that an artist dissect the whole piece, explain all the nuances and theological meaning, and just explain every little thing, which is, again, one sure way to suck the life out of artists, to sap their creativity or criticize them. And again, we start to lose the beauty, and which is one of the reasons that we want to embrace the power of this way of worshiping or expressing or seeing and letting God speak to us. It's why it's an important part of our worship here, and it's part of what we do, even this up here with, with Isaac many weeks where he is creating, where he is painting, and in fact, something like this in a church that he and I attended 15 years ago actually gave birth to a whole artist community, which was really beautiful. Now, it's not simply just that. There's an impact that I wish sometimes I could tell you more of the stories of what happens here, but oftentimes they're kind of confidential or we don't want anybody to be embarrassed, and so we, we, I get to enjoy them, but I don't always get to share them. But oftentimes people will come even in this room and see these pieces on the wall and they'll be curious and they'll go and start reading the artist statements about what the message was that week and they'll read and they'll look at the piece and they'll make their way around the room. That happens a lot when we have other events here or when new folks show up. And it can be really powerful because I hear stories all the time of people saying, wow, if these are the messages, these, I mean, because you can't like tell people, hey, go on the, online and just listen to, you know, 100 hours of sermons if you want to figure out what we're talking about. Um, these summarize some of the crucial pieces and messages of what God's been speaking and teaching here at Hope. 
And so um, we'll have people that'll come and really be moved. You know, AA meets here Saturday mornings, and this room's packed full of guys. I hear stories out of that group. I hear stories out of guests that are using the facility for other reasons. I hear it from new folks that come. And Heidi talked to somebody, uh, I believe it was a couple few weeks ago, and she had come here, and she... um, she was really struggling. She'd been coping with and trying to deal with some addiction issues. She's a professional. She um, is trying to wrestle through this new reality in her life, and she showed up here uh, at Hope. And when she showed up here, um, as I understand it, she, she went around and read the, the messages and read the pieces in here, and what really resonated with her heart was the prodigal son painting back there. And, and that really touched her where she was at and gave her some hope. And she's somebody that we want to pray for and love and also protect her confidentiality. But, but folks, art has such an amazing power to even just sneak up on us, right? And God used a piece of art to kind of get past my linear, logical thinking and trying to problem solve and work everything out. And um, that's, that's what he did with me this week. And, and I remember last fall, it was a time of the year that was pretty hard for us. And at that time, it seemed like really big, really daunting. And a year later, we've <laughs> gone through so much that it's like, oh, which, <laughs> which is more and which is, is less? There's different levels of difficult, I guess. But um, in that season, I went to see a pastor friend of mine who does uh, spiritual direction, which is kind of prayer ministry and listening prayer with you. And I get to my meeting, and I sit down with this guy, because I'm just trying to, you know, figure out, wow, what is going on, and why am I so stressed? And he says, well, before we start, just kind of give me an update on your life. So I told him about some of the stuff here, the challenges we were facing here at Hope. Um, Talked about physically where I was at, that my blood pressure was up, and I had a lot of anxiety in my chest. I had these headaches that kept coming back, and by the way, a lot of that stuff has diminished, which is really wonderful, but that day, it was a really rough season, a really rough day, and in fact, that day that I went to go see my friend, I had three or four different people ask me, like, dude, are you okay? Like, you don't seem like you're doing all right, man, you know? Which is kind of like that old saying, um, if your friends tell you you're drunk, go lie down, right? (laughs) Right? Say, just, you know, whatever it is, take the feedback. Take the feedback. Go see somebody that you trust. And so I did, and that's why I was there. And so there I was with my pastor friend, Danny, and and then on the wall, just across from me, there was this painting, there's this print of, of a Rembrandt painting. Let's put it up on the screen here. This print right here was what I was looking over his shoulder at. And so what I did was uh, <clears throat> I just stood up, walked away from the couch. I go to this painting, and I take it off the wall, you know, like you do. Um, <laughs> took it back with me, and I sat down on the couch, put it on my lap, and just stared at it. And then after a while, my friend asked me, so, Doug, which guy are you in the painting? Hmm. Well, before we go there, let me read this story that the painting's based on from the text. Let's look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. Mark 4, it'll be on the screen. Verse 35 says, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. 
<clears throat> Jesus was sleeping through all this, right? Sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. And the disciples woke him shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind. He said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly, the wind stopped. There was a great calm. Then he looks at his disciples. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples were absolutely terrified. <laughs> Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, back in 1633, an artist named Rembrandt painted this picture. And he, he did his best to attempt to capture what that scene looked like, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. A fun fact, a little side note here. Um, in 1990, this painting was stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Just whoosh, nobody knows who took it. Nobody's seen it since. It disappeared, and its empty frame still hangs in the Boston Museum where it was stolen from. Um, I'm pretty sure that Bruce Heimkees has something like this in his garage, so <laughs> not... We'll let that be a little secret. He's not here today, so yeah, yeah. Um, but here it is. It's 12 disciples. They're in the boat with Jesus. And I wish, I know it's not 1990, but I wish I had a laser pointer here just to really help me, right? All these guys here are at various stages in their way of kind of coping with the storm. And I think they also represent kind of my and your efforts, self-efforts in our flesh to just try to make it work. We're going to make life work. So let's zoom in here on the top here. There's a, let's see the guy up on the top there. He's grabbing a hold of this. Um, apparently he's convinced in the middle of this storm, if he can just fix the rigging, <laughs> if he can climb a little higher and get this thing set, then everything's going to be fine. It's like, oh, if I get a little tighter, then we'll all just be fine. Do <clears throat> um, you know anybody like that in your life? Are you somebody like that, in, right? Um, that was actually me a bunch of times, I think, this, this past year, and maybe even sometimes this past few weeks. I mean, just check the guy out, right? He's, he's like, oh, man, okay, the, the mast is about to snap, but still, if we can just turn the rigging a little more to the starboard side, then maybe we'll be fine. We'll have smooth sailing, and I mean, let's be real. I don't even know which side the starboard side is, Okay. Thank you, thank you. That won't try, keep me from trying to fix it, though, right? That won't keep me, whether I know or not, it's, I'm just going to try to fix something, do something. And the four other guys in that area, they're kind of fixers, too, frantically scrambling, trying to save the ship. Um, check the zoom out over here. All right, closer to the bottom here where Jesus is sitting. Can you see this guy? There's kind of two guys up in his face over here. One is grabbing Jesus by his cloak, like, he's kind of mad, right? He looks angry. He's probably the guy that said, don't you care that we're all going to drown and die, right? I mean, he's grabbing Jesus. It's like, dude, you don't do that. He's the son of God for crying out loud, man, right? Don't be that guy. That's like a unnecessary roughness, 15 yards. That's one way to respond, right? Um, how about the guy behind him, the guy that looks kind of confused, right? He looks really confused, and he's probably thinking something like, well, I can see these Guys, talking to Jesus, I don't think they're actually getting anything done. Maybe I'll head over there with Bart and help him, you know, rig the mast or something. Um, um, how about the guy? It's hard to see him because it's a little dark. But you see the guy in the very front in the red coat? He's leaning over the edge. Yeah. 
right? It's like, I've seen the storm, I see Jesus, and Jesus, I want to be close to you, but, right? Anybody like that, right? Anybody identify with this guy? Actually, I, I get super bad motion sickness, like, all the time, right? So, Dramamine is my friend, um, whether I'm flying, whether I'm in a boat, whether I'm in a car, and, and you know, I hear people talk about going on cruises. I'd love to try it someday, but... I'm just nervous about the whole sickness thing. Unless there was an emergency helicopter evac that was just included in the cruise price. Yeah, yeah. So, but in this boat here, if I wasn't the guy scrambling on the mast, I'd probably be this guy right here, just, you know, upchucking over the side of the boat, actually hoping that maybe we'll sink and sink quickly so I can just end my misery. Um, it's no fun, right? That guy is sick. Uh, there's this guy over here. Um, he's kind of looking at us, head on his hand, hand on his head. Actually, this is on your bulletin too. Um, hand on his head, and apparently that's Rembrandt there. Um, he's lost in this painting, and Rembrandt, by the way, he tries to paint himself into most of his paintings. So here, the guy on the hand on his head, this is him, and he's looking back at us saying like, oh man, where are we? And he's feeling completely lost. Um, all right, check the guy up here. Uh, at the helm. See the guy, he's got his head kind of tilted sideways, the farthest back on the right. Um, it's kind of futility, right? He's just got the, you know, the oar in his hand. I don't think it's even in the water when you can see this a little more clearly. It's not even in there. He's just grabbing it, and he's thinking, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter what we do. We are toast. This thing is over, right? Now, there's one guy who's doing something helpful, and again, it's probably easier to see on your, on your bulletin, but there is a guy uh, over to the right here, and he's got his um, head down. And if, if you look at a better, higher resolution, sorry, we didn't test this on the screen sooner. If you look at a higher resolution, you can see that his, his head, like he's down in front of Jesus, he's praying, he's worshiping. Um, pretty sure if Stacy was here, we're going to pick on the Heimkees because they're not here. If she was here, she'd be like, that's me, I'm worshiping, I'm praising the Lord, that's, that's me, right? Um, and then the guy behind Rembrandt here, he's just kind of looking off. He's given in. Like, he's like, this is resignation, the guy on the left of Rembrandt here. He's just resigned himself, like, I've given up. He's wrapped himself in a blanket. He's not even facing Jesus. He is just covered up. He is ready to just watch it all wash away. And this painting, such a masterpiece, and it represents so many different stages. I think he's captured all of us in the various stages of our faith and how we approach a storm that's already swamping our boat, right? It's already swamping the boat. And I think that we rarely approach the storms of life with an adequate grasp of grace. But when storms do come, it can remind us of our inability to solve ourselves by ourselves, See, storms can also remind us of our need for Jesus day by day, moment by moment. And when I shift my eyes from the storm or from the shipwreck that my life is in the middle of, when I shift my focus from this storm-induced panic all around me, often I look at Jesus and I'm undone by this man who reveals himself as being greater than my fears. And when I fix my eyes on Jesus, you know what it does? It, it frees me from my fears. And it releases me to be able to risk 
living a life of faith for others even while all the stuff is going on. But confession time, honestly, um, rather than living into that, far too often I still ignore Jesus in the storm until I've exhausted my own inabilities. And when I have exhausted my abilities, um, sometimes I get a little upset and then I accuse him of not having cared about us. You know, um, last year we looked through the book of Acts and Paul himself, he went through some, the Apostle Paul went through some ship, shipwrecks. And I appreciate how honest we can be as we look at some of these stories of, of the life of these men and women of God, the reality of what really happened. Like there's no sugarcoating, that it wasn't easy, there were not, um, there were always obstacles. And, and I'm really grateful for that because I think it gives context and hope to our own lives and stories. Um, looking at the stories of the real-life people in Scripture reminds me that life is hard, that there are no formulas, there is no quick fix, and when stuff happens in life, and by the way, when stuff, not if, but when it happens, right? When you are in a storm, when you are in a cave, when you experience a shipwreck, it's not because God is mad at you, right? It's not because God is punishing you. But, 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 but when, when just stuff hits the fan, many of us, um, we automatically assume that, well, God did this to me, right? He brought this on me. After all, he is sovereign, this thing that's happening must have been his plan. And, oh, man, I hear that. And it, it's so common. And it is one of the most harmful and dangerous assumptions made by many people. And too often it's reinforced by even popular theology, which I think is bad theology. Because the truth is, much of the time, maybe even most of the time, when a shipwreck happens, when we find ourselves in a cave season of life, and whether we know why or not, or we think we know why we're in it or not, I believe that it's just part of life. Life happens. We live in a fallen world. And so death and brokenness and tragedy and pain, that's not God's plan. That's not his doing. He doesn't bring evil or punishment on his kids. Amen. Jesus doesn't create calamities to teach us a lesson. Amen. He doesn't. What he does is he employs what already exists to mature us into who he's designed us to become. He takes what's happened and he makes a way to bring some good. See, oftentimes, again, we attribute this stuff to God. Well, God did this or God took my loved one or what. We, we put it on God and forget that we live in a fallen world. We forget that, we, that there's an enemy in your story and mine. And Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? That's what Jesus says. So sometimes it's the enemy. Sometimes it's the own mess we've made. We've been talking about consequences from our actions or the actions of others. When people do harmful stuff, there's amazing grace for them, but there's still a mess to clean up. And sometimes that turns into a shipwreck or a chaos or a storm in your life or mine, it's just a part of life in a fallen world. And, and I'll be honest, again, I have wasted lots of time and emotion in the past by blaming God when something bad happens or wondering, did God bring this on me to try to teach me a lesson? Because if God did cause and plan my divorce or your kid's illness 
or, or your family's dysfunctional mess or the abuse that someone suffered, if God did plan the lies and betrayal, if that was God's sovereign plan, then what kind of God is he anyways? And I can't get too much more into that in the time that we have this morning, but I just want to disarm that lie, even without fully having time to unpack it, with this truth. Disarm that lie with this truth. Friends, God didn't bring the evil and pain and death into your story. That's not his plan. That's not his desire for your life. Now, again, what I mentioned earlier, God will bring good out of each and every situation that we encounter. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who've been called according to his purpose. We look at the verse, it doesn't say that God causes all things. No, no, but in all things, he works it for our good. There's, there's nothing that's too dark or painful that he won't find a way to bring goodness and restoration. And nothing that we face surprises him. But, but again, God doesn't cause the destruction that we encounter. Again, sometimes it's the enemy's doing. Again, that's scriptural. And how nuts is it that so many times we attribute destruction or death that's brought, we attribute it to God instead of to the enemy. I mean, that's, wow. So sometimes it's the enemy. Sometimes it's a consequence of our actions or someone else's actions around us. But, but again, some of the time, most of the time maybe, it's life in a fallen world. And so we look at the characters in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, for example, all the mess that he went through, all that he endured, and having to learn how to trust that God was indeed working in every circumstance, in all of the chaos for good, which brought me back to thinking about this story again that we started with, the disciples, Jesus, and this whole storm deal. So flip back to that in your mind. Jesus, right before the story we read, where the storm happens, right before this, he had a doozy of a day. I mean, healings and miracles and people and family dysfunction and crowds. He gets to the end of the day, and Jesus is completely whooped. Like, he is exhausted. Now, remember, yes, he's fully God, but he's fully man as well. And as fully man, he is able to feel that bone-weary exhaustion where he's like, oh, man, I just need to get away from everybody else and close my eyes and rest. Even Jesus. Now, so just imagine the scene, right? So, so there they are. The disciples get him into the boat. Says there's a cushion. Uh, maybe there's some kind of sheltered overhang near the hull where they tuck him under. And the waves lapping against the boat. Immediately, Jesus falls asleep. And after a while, they're out in the waterways. And then they find themselves middle of the lake. And they hear a sound. <laughs> uh, a rumble. Maybe it was coming from the west, and in the geography there is where Mount Hermon is. And they would have all turned their heads and looked, because they would have known what that sound meant. A storm off in the distance, and it's quickly coming towards them. Now, a sudden storm on the Sea of Galilee is no small thing. It's likely that the heat of the day would have pulled the storm from the nearby mountain there, and now it just comes rushing over the lake. And we're talking about explosive, deadly, destructive power. And again, for context, this is early in their relationship, in their ministry with Jesus. They, by now, they already know he's really something special. They know he's impressive. 
They probably even love him at this point, but, but they still see him as a teacher. Like the rabbi, uh, he's, he's a carpenter. Um, and, and these guys, some of them are fishermen, and they're professional boatsmen, so they know what they're doing on the water, right? Jesus is a carpenter, they are fishermen, so like, okay, we're on the water, this is their territory, right? We know what to do, we've got this one, Jesus, this is our territory, we know how to handle the boat. So even if Jesus is the Messiah, they probably are thinking, this isn't really his strength, right? <laughs> or so they think. So back to our imaginative picture here, that storm, <laughs> that rumble would have become what verse 37 here says is a furious squall. And picture it's nighttime, the storm is racing down the mountain, it's over the water, and I'm sure they could have seen it coming by moonlight. This huge storm of blackness coming down from Mount Hermon, just sheets of water eventually raining all over them, hurricane force winds, and as soon as it hits, they're going to know, as soon as this hits, it's going to go black. And it did. And the waves started to hit, wave after wave after stronger wave, and it was getting louder and louder. My guess is at this point is when the shouting began, right? Hey, come on, guys. What are we going to get? We got to get things buckled down. Like, get her pointed in the right direction. They're yelling at each other, I imagine. And then the top, you know, on top of all that stress, I'm I'm guessing, uh, from what we know of some of the disciples, I, I bet the blame started. Hey, would you let go of the rope? Did you lash the mast? I mean, don't you know how to steer? Come on, man, do something. So they're yelling. trying to turn the boat into the wind, trying to stabilize the boat, but the boat is going down. And they all know, if that happens, we will all be lost at sea and quickly. (laughs) You know, again, while I'm picturing this, it's just interesting. It's only when things get really bad and they're about to sink before anybody bothers to go, huh, I wonder if we should wake up Jesus and let him know what's going on here, right? You know? I guess we got the Son of God on the boat, you know, the Messiah. I wonder if we might want to chat with him for just a moment. So apparently, though, it doesn't occur to them until that moment where they go, it is for certain that we have done everything we can and we're going down. So they wake him, they, they shake him, they are yelling. And I love in that picture we looked at here from Rembrandt where Jesus is just calmly sitting there, right? He's almost chatty, <laughs> My friend uh, John Lynch says, I can imagine him waking up and saying, Whoo, man, whoa, wow, look, I was out cold. Check this out. What do we have here? That's an impressive lightning show. Look at this storm. Oh, hey, Peter, how's your mom? I know I I got to heal her earlier today, but I didn't get a chance to check in on her. You know, how's she doing there? Um, He's not real concerned, right? He might have been like, dude, would you let go of my cloak? What's your problem, right? (laughs) But I can picture Jesus he, he's not exactly in a hurry to do anything. And then somebody starts shouting at Jesus, of all things. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care that we're going through this and that we're going to go down? Help! Isn't it interesting? Uh, Lynch says, um, we ignore him in the storm until we've exhausted our ability, our options, our ideas... And then we accuse him of not having cared about us. Uh, anybody else other than me do that? There's a couple that are honest. I guess we're going to have to work uh, lying into our sermon series next, okay? Um, <laughs> but yeah, in, in my storms, in my shipwrecks, 
if I'm going to be real with you, I easily go to, Jesus, do you even care? <laughs> like, I know that you're able. I, I've seen you do it for others. I've seen you do it in history. So you, you are able. So you must not care. Is like that the only option I have? I'm so grateful that he has grace for us in our wondering, our confusion, our anger, our blame. He has grace for us. Because when I do that, I need him even more. Because when I do that kind of stuff, I feel alone. I feel alone again. I feel alone because I'm believing this lie that there was no one that is able, there is no one willing to protect me, so I'm going to have to protect myself. And so words like that, that I spout off to Jesus, those are the kinds of things I'm prone to saying before I start drowning again in my own self-reliance, my own false self-strategies, in my own self-protection. And when I do that, I surrender my heart to fear. Like, that's the cost of living in that, is to live then in fear. Surrender my heart to fear. And friends, there is something that happens in me when I lean into love. There's something very different that happens when I give into fear. Very different, right? When I lean into love, I believe that Jesus is strong enough and steadfast enough and big enough and brave enough and wise enough and kind enough and powerful enough to protect me from whatever it is that he chooses to and when I'm in that place, I'm safe from, from fear, right? Love drives out fear. But often, far too quickly, I give in to believing the lies of fear, and all that nasty stuff just kind of overwhelms me again, right? When I give in to fear, which happens way more often than I wish it did, even after decades of following Jesus, in fear, I, I live this story of lies out I begin to think, God doesn't really want the best for me. He doesn't understand what this is doing to me. He seems almost indifferent to what I'm going through. Why is it that he goes furthest away when I need him most? So I believe he either forgets about me or, worse, is unable to help me. And I shout out, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? Back to the story. Again, imagine the scene here, the near-deafening sounds, the howling of rain, the howling of men, desperate screams, wind and shouting and terror and so much chaos. The moon is hidden by the clouds. Nobody can see anything now. It's black and dark, and only when the lightning flashes do they have a clue to where even grab onto something to try to not get thrown overboard. And suddenly, when everyone has exhausted their efforts, their self-reliance, and they realize this is not going to work, and one of them has yelled at Jesus, then, three, two, one, hush, be still. And in that moment, those three words, silence. Like flipping a switch, the storm stops, the rain stops, the wind stops, the clouds break up, the waves cease, and then there's moonlight that can be seen. 
And as I imagine this scene, I kind of see, you know, when the moonlight comes, we suddenly see where all the disciples are, right? They're just strewn all over the deck, right? Some are holding on to the mast. Others are holding on to ripped sails. Others to ropes and rigging. I can imagine one guy laying in the fetal position, sucking his thumb. I mean, it's quite a scene. And the only sounds in that moment, they're the whimpering, the panting of men, the dripping of water from sails, and there stands Jesus. Just imagine the silhouette, the moon beside him. Maybe for a few moments, nothing was said at all. And then verse 40, it says, he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I think part of what he's saying, just part of it at least, is, guys, (laughs) you still don't know exactly who I am yet, do you? I mean, I know, I know, it's okay, it's okay, this isn't a condemning statement, Um, you don't have actual mature faith and trust in me yet, I mean, you tried to look like you got it all together, but you're so afraid, but the truth is you haven't seen anything like me or anything like this. Verse 41, the disciples were absolutely terrified. (laughs) Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. And isn't that crazy, right? After this terrifying storm had stopped and they were now safe, they hear the words from Jesus, they see his power on display, and then they become absolutely terrified. (laughs) Because now they've seen, right? And in time, they grew in faith. In time, we grow in faith, and we grow in trust. And in time, we learn about this God, this Jesus, who is love incarnate. We trust in his love. You know, maybe they were confused about how to respond to Jesus in this moment, and I think we get confused about how to respond to God We really get oddly misinterpretations on what the fear of the Lord means. That'd be worth a whole sermon sometimes. But we run to fear really quickly, right? We are afraid of God. Maybe sometimes we even think he wants us to be afraid of him. But friends, here's the truth about God. God does not want you to feel threatened around him. God does not want you to feel unsafe around him. God does not want you to be falsely religious around him. God does not want you to be cautious to approach him. God does not want you to cover up yourself around him. God does not want you to wear a mask around him. God does not want you to pretend out of fear of his response to the real you. God only wants that you would trust him with you. John Lynch again says, for us to be truly safe in his love, we must first be undone at how small we have made him and then experience him in endless strength, power, glory, and love. Just thinking about the love of God and what is the opposite of, of love. It's not hate. Um, the opposite of love is fear. Exactly. It's fear. First John 4 verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And I think the inverse of that is true as well. Like love does drive out fear, but when I enter into fear, fear has the power to drive out love as well. 
makes it hard to see. And I believe that any storm, any shipwreck that I've been through, ultimately it's a battle between fear and love. See, there's a fear, there's a kind of fear that makes me want to run away, but there's a love that makes me and compels me to run toward. There's a fear that immobilizes me, but there's a love that protects me. There's a fear that causes me to hide, but there's a love which lets me reveal all hiding. There's a fear that causes me to live small, but there's a love that frees me to risk everything. There's a fear that causes me to live cowardly, but there is a love that reveals me as brave and courageous because of who he says I am as a child of God. See, there's a manipulative religious fear that terrifies us of God, but there's a love that ends my fear and causes me to never want to be anywhere else but where he is. And the only thing that can take away my fears is to experience the love of the one who is greater than all my fears. You know, looking back at that Rembrandt painting, there's another character in here that resonates with me. Because for most of my life, yeah, I've been the guy up there scrambling to fix the mast and, you know, just save the day, you know, do something, be a leader. Um... But for a while, especially when my life crashed about eight years ago, I often looked like the guy wrapped in a blanket with his back to Jesus. I looked like that guy huddled over behind the guy puking, right? Yeah, huddled over, my back to Jesus. Some days just staring out at the storm, waiting for it all to be over. Um, And if it wasn't for my son... I have no idea what would have happened. Because life throws some really crazy stuff at you, doesn't it? Just crazy hard stuff. It throws things at you that feel like they never should have happened. It can rob your joy and steal your peace and cause you to feel like Jesus is not even paying attention. And even with all the healing and recovery that I've been through, sometimes, and even sometimes this past week or weeks here, my heart betrays me. And oftentimes Jesus catches me. But when that hard stuff comes, and sometimes even feels like it's coming at you, and when it comes, it's easy to stop and just stare at the storm, not even realizing that my back is to Jesus. And it gets tempting to say things like, God, I thought you cared. Where are your promises? What happened? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you warn me? I thought you loved me. Is it that you don't care? And again, if I go there... Fear immobilizes me. It scares me. It overwhelms me. And when those storms come, (laughs) we will do everything we know how to do in our own power because, hey, we've always done this. Like, this is what we do. We solve our stuff. We figure it out. Where's Jesus? I have no idea. But when that storm gets out of control and we are overwhelmed, we're feeling defeated or tired up or beaten, then either we cover up, we're covering up, we're, we're throwing up or clinging to the mast, right? But imagine when it all goes dark, we can't see anything, we can't do anything, and then we finally call out and say, help, <laughs> help, Jesus. I can't, I can't do that. Help, God, help. And when we do that, there's Jesus right there, right where he was all along. Right? And in our stories, he's not napping, right? He's not asleep. He's right there. 
And this morning, um, I saw something similar as I prayed uh, in our the living room over here um, earlier this morning. It was sim- similar in some ways to what I saw last fall when I was started this whole story about looking at this painting. And I pictured myself, I'm sitting at my desk in the office here at church, I'm hunched over, I'm furiously writing, I'm trying to solve problems and work at outcomes, and I'm stressed, and I was intense, and sitting a few feet away from me in another chair in my office was, was Jesus, just sitting back, quietly, watching, waiting, ready, but patient. Finally, I put down my pen, my notepad, and I turned and I said, Jesus, Help, help. And, and he showed me that because of my fear, there's times that I think it's up to me to save the day, to figure it all out. And I'd taken on a, a lot of stuff. And he said, hey, Doug, listen, some of it I'm calling you to carry. Some of it I am, but not all of it. And, and he reminded me again of this painting, the guy on the boat with his back to Jesus. And then he said, Doug, will you turn around and look at me? Because when you look at me, when your eyes are on me, I will sort out what is yours to carry and what to let go of. He said, Doug, the extra stuff that you're carrying, it's a heavy yoke. How about you take that stuff off? How about you stand that stuff over to me? Doug, he said, how about you trade fear for love? And I said, yes. Like, I'm not as dumb as I look, people, okay, right? And I walk away lighter, freer. That doesn't mean that there's no problems to take care of. There's no issues to address that we just let it all go and don't worry about anything. It doesn't mean any of that. But with my eyes on Jesus, with your eyes on Jesus, following Jesus, I'm not going to be anxious for tomorrow. I really will trust him with me. I really will trust him with this Hope family, which... Storm or no storm, eyes on Jesus, being with Jesus is the safest place for all of us to be. Amen? Worship team, will you come? So friends, some questions maybe to take with you this week, or even to sit with as we worship. Because no matter the storm, right, no matter the shipwreck, no matter the cave, We are all invited to live in the love of this Jesus who is present in every shipwreck, in every storm. So some questions for you to take with you this week. Where where is your storm? Where is your shipwreck? Where are you experiencing fear in the storms of life? And once you've located that, what would it take to stop, step back, and see more? to see Jesus in the situation. So that's our invitation for this week, to look for Jesus in your life this week. And even as we get busy, and sometimes we've got stuff to do, so we're going to be busy, but to stop, to ask, to look, to see Jesus. You stand with me and pray.